your Bibles and join me in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to talk about something very, very exciting and important tonight. You know, in the long list of inventions that are designed to make our lives easier and yet have the potential to create more trouble than they're worth, I would have to say the one that has exasperated me the most is autocorrect. Has anybody out here fallen victim to an autocorrect fail? You know what I'm talking about? I have fallen victim to this many, many times. It is frustrating uh, because it's designed to do something and then it does something else. What's it designed to do? This is that thing, that feature on your phone where you're typing and you're texting somebody perhaps and you misspell a word. Autocorrect is designed to identify your mistake and then it swoops in to help you out. And then it replaces that word that you misspelled with another word. And nine times out of ten, the word that it replaces it with or the phrase it replaces it with has nothing to do with what you intended. And so you often look foolish. So for a device that is supposed to make you intelligible, it often makes you sound like Joe Biden after a visit to the dentist. (laughs) Or worse... It's very, it comes off very vulgar, and that can happen too on occasion. And by the way, I would not, I would not recommend that you Google autocorrect fails. You're going to see stuff you don't want to be seeing. You know what I'm saying? One time my boss texted me and he said, are you available? Do you have some time in this particular time slot for a meeting on this particular day? And I texted him back and said, no. And it was an hour later before I looked at my phone and I realized I meant to say, no, I don't. And I said, no, idiot. That's not what you want right there. And so I really hope that the United States doesn't rely on this technology when they engage in diplomatic activities with, say, nuclear powers or something like that, because there are some messages we can't afford to get wrong. Amen? Amen. Now, in Christianity, we've got a message that we cannot afford to get wrong. It is the essential message of our faith. We cannot risk miscommunicating that message. People need to receive this correct message, and we call this message the gospel. And so tonight, I want to talk about the true biblical gospel. Now, there are uh, many forms of the gospel. We have manipulated it. We have twisted it into something that it was never intended to be. And I want to share about four examples of that with you tonight as we get started here. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. The first is called the social gospel. The social gospel. And this is the means by which uh, supposedly God levels the, the, the socioeconomic playing field. You've got the haves, you've got the have-nots. And the notion here basic, basically could be summed up in two words. Help out. Help out. Lend a hand. That doesn't sound so bad, does it? Sounds pretty good, actually. I mean, it, the whole notion is that those who have in abundance, they release some of that, and they, they share with their fellow man who happens to be in need, who happens to be impoverished. Now, that sounds wonderful, kind of sounds a little like Jesus, if you look at his life. But you know something? Not the gospel. Not the gospel. The second twisted gospel that we encounter today is called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. Some of our charismatic brothers and sisters have bought into this. And the idea here is that God's desire is to always bless me financially, materially, uh, personally, somehow. That there is uh, the result of steadfast faith that that equates uh, to wealth of some sort. And basically, if you could sum this up in two words, it'd be get rich. Get rich. Now, that's definitely not the gospel. And if it is the gospel, I can't think of a worse poster boy than Jesus. In his word, it says that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. I mean, you know, can you imagine a leader of a get-rich movement? That's a homeless guy. That's essentially what we'd be talking about. So that's not the gospel. The third is the moral gospel. The moral gospel. This is just obeying all the moral teachings of Christ. Now, that definitely doesn't sound bad. Sounds pretty biblical, except if you're doing it to earn the favor of God. If you're doing it in any kind of transactional way. So what is this? Essentially, uh, summed up, two words, be good. Just be good. Can you imagine if that were the gospel? 
be good, earn the favor of God, this is the one that leads to a lot of disillusionment. A lot of disillusionment among church people. They get frustrated trying to meet some impossible standard. I saw a video online a few years ago. I was very concerned when I watched it. I was a fan of this particular Christian musician. He was a fantastic uh, uh, musician, amazing songwriter. If I told you his name, some of the songs, you would probably know them. But in recent years, he started tweeting and and posting uh, notions about certain Christian doctrines that he was drifting away from. He was starting to uh, seem to oppose historic Christian positions. And we all started to get worried about him. We're like, what's up with so-and-so, you know? And then his wife went online, did a video interview where she explained what what had been going on, that they'd been struggling as a couple with, with all of these Christian doctrinal concepts that they'd grown up with. They just didn't understand them. They were, they were fighting against them. And, and she just recounted their story. She said that her husband had just completed a full year where he just went full atheist. He just completely turned his back on God because they'd felt that the church had driven them away with some of these doctrines they found offensive and unbelievable. And as I listened to her, I realized they had always gotten the gospel wrong. They had never gotten their arms around the true gospel. And it could be that they were presented with the moral gospel and they were demoralized by that because if there's an impossible standard that you can't meet, you're going to get frustrated. You're going to get disillusioned. You're going to want to quit. And there's another word for that. It's called legalism. And speaking of legalism, there's another gospel, the fourth and last one I want to talk about in the beginning here, that is more of a subtle form of legalism. And in fact, I call this the subtle gospel. The subtle gospel. Uh, This is just a kinder, gentler legalism. That's what this is. And and, And in this, the gospel is presented in a phrase. And it's a phrase that you are probably familiar with. It's a phrase that you've probably uttered. It's a phrase that may have even shown up on, on the website for this church. In fact, pretty much every church I've ever served at has, has promoted this phrase in, in one way or another. And there's really nothing wrong in and of these four words that I'm going to say, but, but they are presented as the embodiment, as the summation of the gospel simplified, and they are these words, love God, love people. Now, I've said that, you've said that, anything wrong with those words? I mean, Jesus even says that in the scripture. There's a period, or there's a place in scripture where Jesus is approached by Pharisees. They come to him, they want to trip him up, you know, they want to ask him a question, try to stump him, make him look bad. And they ask him, they say, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And they know no matter what he says, he's going to tick somebody off. He's going to make some, because everybody, nobody could agree on what the greatest commandment is. Some would say the, the first commandment's the greatest. You shall have no other gods before me, because all the other commandments emanate from that. Some say, do not kill. That's the greatest commandment, because it's the bridge between the first table of the law and the second table of the law. Some would say, do not covet is the most important commandment, because all sin arises from covetousness. But Jesus is very astute. He's savvy, and so he answers them. He says, the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And when he says that, what he's doing is he's taking the first table of the law, the first four commandments, and he's condensing them. Love the Lord your God, right? Because the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments all deal with loving and honoring God. And then Jesus says, and another is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And in saying that, he's summing up the second table of the law because the last six commandments all deal with loving and honoring your fellow man. And so he's just summing them up. He's saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, might, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he's just summing it all up. And so when the Pharisees say to him, what's the greatest commandment? He's saying, I'm going to have to say one through four, followed closely by five through ten. And the point is this, that love God, love people is the law summarized. That's what it is. It is not the gospel. It is not the gospel. Very good to maintain the spirit of the law. But if you tried to keep the law as a means for earning the favor of God, that is not the true gospel. The gospel saves us from the reality of the law. 
If it was incumbent upon you to keep the law, to perfectly love God and love people, you'd be up the creek. And so it is the true gospel that makes it so it's not dependent on us. The law was never meant to save, ever. It only serves to condemn us and reveal our sin. And so in this text today, we are going to see the Apostle Paul clarify the gospel. He goes to war on behalf of the true gospel. There are guys who are uh, opposing the true gospel, who are denying the true gospel, and Paul shuts them down and emboldens those who would defend it. And here's what I want you to take away tonight. If you don't get anything else that I'm saying, you write this down and you make this at home in your heart, in your notes, any presentation of the true gospel must include the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It must include the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those four twisted gospels that I just told you, they all omit the death and resurrection of Christ. That's what they have in common. Now, why do they do that? There is a number of reasons, I would think. One reason is those are considered supernatural. Resurrection is a supernatural event. And there has been an ongoing effort to eradicate anything supernatural from the Scripture. It, this has been going on for centuries. People are uncomfortable with the supernatural. If you're a scholar or an academic and you're progressive, you, you might look at the Old Testament and you might go, people are not going to buy the Red Sea parting. People are not going to buy the 10 plagues of Egypt. They're not going to buy the burning bush. Why that, they, you know, what those are, those are metaphors. Those are metaphors. Those are symbols. There's a lesson hidden in those events. And so they deny the supernatural aspects of it. They get to the New Testament. They see the virgin birth. They're like, ah, we don't really need the virgin birth, do we? Maybe that symbolizes something. They look at the miracles of Christ. And they explain them away. They rationalize everything. They look at the walking on the water and the turn of water into wine and the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. And, and they find some uh, hidden meaning to, to be a, a, a timeless truth that we can embrace through the metaphor of Scripture. And they do all this to make the Bible palatable to the modern mind, to modern sensibilities. I think another reason is that they... They do it to focus on the present. If you look at these gospels, they all deal with right here, right now. I saw an illustration by Francis Chan, and he used a rope, and he took this rope, and this rope symbolizes eternity, and you've got all this back here, this is eternity past, and you've got all this right here, that's eternity future, but where do we spend our time? Where do we focus all of our concentration right here on this little red section? What is this? This is, this is us right here, right now. This is the present. We focus all our time and energy on this when we adhere to those four twisted gospels, and we ignore all of this, and it goes on and on into eternity, but we just focus on that which is temporal. Why? If you look at the first gospel, what is it? Help out. Just help out. That's right now. If you look at the second gospel, get rich. That's right now. If you look at the third, obey God. That's right now. Love God, love people. That's right now. Ah, but the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that has eternal implications. It has eternal implications. And so in this chapter, Paul is gonna go down deep on that. He's going to shut down the naysayers of the true gospel. He's going to embolden the defenders of the true gospel. You ready to be emboldened tonight? All right, let's look at this. Paul is going to give us three marks of the true gospel, and then we're going to look at some other ramifications of that. Let's bow real quick. Heavenly Father, bless our time in the Word tonight. We pray that you would just anoint our reading of Scripture tonight. May we understand it. May we see the application and the power therein, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Three marks of the true gospel. The first mark of the true gospel is it has authority. It has authority. Those other gospels have no authority because they are rooted in man. Every one of them. If I'm going to help people out, that's a gospel that is dependent upon me. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. It says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. And so Paul is setting the stage here. He's saying, all right, look. It's, it's me, it's Paul, it's the apostle. I am addressing you, the church, at Corinth. 
And the subject matter that he's established here is the gospel. He says, this is the gospel. I'm reminding you of the gospel that I preached, that you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. This is a gospel that saves. And as such, it's the only gospel that matters. All those twisted gospels that I shared examples of, those do not save, therefore they do not matter. And they don't save because they're all dependent on human effort. And so this is a gospel that saves. Now, there is an if clause. He says, if you hold fast, it saves. It's the gospel by which you're saved. If, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now let's stop right there because th this could be complicated for some folk. They might read that and they go, okay, the gospel saves me if I hold fast to it. If I hold fast to it, all right? And some people get nervous about that and they read that and they start to think, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe that means I can lose my salvation if I deviate from the gospel, if I fall away from the gospel. Some interpret Paul to be saying that right here. Is that what Paul is saying? Is Paul saying that you can lose your salvation right here? Can you lose your salvation? I think that this is addressed rather succinctly by Dr. John MacArthur. I've heard him say this. He said, you know, if you could lose your salvation, you would. You would. If you could, it, you'd have already lost it by now. Because how arrogant would you have to be to say, you know, I, I, I got saved. Jesus came to live, live in my heart. I, I'm, I'm on my way to heaven. When I die, as of this moment, I will go to heaven. Now, that's my condition. Now, it is possible that between now and then, it's possible that I could do something to lose it. But as of right now, I'm nailing it. I got this. This is, this is I'm doing a great job right now. I think you just lost it. <laughs> if you could lose it, you just lost it because you're being arrogant about your own ability. All right? How arrogant does somebody have to be to think that, you know, I'm a Christian, but, but I, can, I, can, I, can, I can do the stuff, I can stay the course, and somehow not lose my salvation. This theology would put Paul at odds with the rest of this passage because, I mean, if we read on, you see there's no way that he believes this. Furthermore, it would put him at odds with pretty much everything else that he ever wrote. It's Paul who says... I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. What is the power of God? The gospel of who? Of Jesus Christ, not of Scott Graham. It's not the gospel of my effort. It is not my retention of the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And, and there's so much I could camp out here. We could spend all night on this. I could do a whole series on this eternal security stuff, but I wanna, I wanna give you one thing. This is one of my favorite arguments for eternal security. <laughs> in Ephesians 1, verse 13 uh, and 14, it says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, <laughs> and believed in him, you were sealed, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So he's saying you have a guarantee, you are sealed. That's permanent language. By who? By the Holy Spirit, which is what? The guarantee of your salvation. He's the guarantee. Now, if you were to read the King James Version, which I think is fun to do sometimes, the word for guarantee is earnest. He is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchase. So in other words, before, until you stand before God on judgment day, when, you, when your lowly state in the flesh is transformed into that which is like Christ, and you are fully saved, fully redeemed, until that moment, you are indwelled and sealed by the Holy Spirit who is the earnest of your salvation. Amen. Yeah, come on, amen. Now, the earnest, I like that word earnest. I just bought a house in, uh, over in Elon, right? 
and we put down some earnest money. You've probably done something like that too. Although in North Carolina, you got this other thing called due diligence. Oh my word, that's like earnest money on steroids. I wasn't prepared for that, okay. But the concept of earnest money is what? You, you enter into a contract, I am purchasing this pros, uh, property, uh, and here's a check. This is my earnest money. Now you take that money. If I don't show up on closing day, guess what happens to that check? You keep that. That is no longer mine, right? Now, who's the earnest? The Holy Spirit. The third member of the Godhead. This is deity. And so God is putting down as earnest money on your salvation, your eternal life, the Holy Spirit. And if he does not save you, he must forfeit the third member of the Trinity. So the only way for you to stop being saved is for God to stop being God. Is that going to happen? Not a chance. Not a chance. So... What is Paul saying? He's saying that we're not gonna lose our salvation if we drift from the true gospel. He's saying that you must believe the right gospel to begin with. If you don't believe the right gospel to begin with, you can't be saved. You cannot. I believe if you're sealed and you understand the gospel correctly and you receive that, you believe that, you are born again. But you must believe the right gospel, the one I originally preached to you, says Paul. Now, here's what he says. The word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. All right? He's given an argument from authority that he, as an apostle, preached the right gospel clearly. If you believed it, you received it, which he says they did, then they are sealed. If they didn't receive it correctly, they are not sealed. And so it has authority because it comes from an apostle who comes from God. He's the mouthpiece of God. Second point here that you can jot down is the true gospel has evidence. It has evidence. In verse three, it says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, you know all of that that I just read to you? You know what we call that right there? We call that the gospel. That's the gospel. You wanna know what the gospel is? How do you articulate the gospel? Paul just did it right here. Christ died... For our sins, that's the atonement. According to the scripture, it was prophesied. They've been talking about it all throughout the Old Testament. All the prophets were pointing ahead. Every time they would sacrifice a lamb and shed the blood, symbolically, atoning for sins of a nation, pointed ahead to Jesus. John the Baptist sees Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He died for our sins, according to the scriptures, he was buried. That means it was a literal, physical death. He didn't swoon. He didn't pass out. He didn't faint. You know, he physically died. He was buried and he was raised. If he, if he died physically, he rose physically. It was not a spiritual resurrection. It was a literal resurrection on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures. This was all verified by the, the fulfillment of prophetic scripture. So Paul couches this argument in evidence, not physical evidence, okay? Not like some apologist going, well, we have this manuscript that says this and this, this. All that's great. He's, he's couching it in evident, biblical evidence. Biblical evidence, the authority, the inerrancy, the sufficiency of Scripture. He uses that phrase in accordance with the Scriptures twice. Why does he do that? Because there's authority there, and it's been prophesied, and his dying and rising is in fulfillment of what has been prophesied. Does the Scripture have authority? Do you believe it's inspired of God? Do you believe that it is without error? Are there people in Christian circles who don't believe those things? Yes, there are. There are. Uh, there are prominent people that don't believe this. There's a very, very influential author, writer, thinker named Rob Bell. Rob Bell. Stay away from Rob Bell. 
Rob Bell used to pastor one of the largest churches in America. He has since stepped down from that. He's a full-time author, uh, speaker. He's kind of a media darling because of things that he's written that are controversial, that uh, progressives sort of embrace. He's been all over the place. He's been on Oprah several times. Last time I saw him on Oprah, he said the following. He said, uh, the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. He's very pro-LGBTQI, ampersand, whatever. And he, he negates any perceived authority of the Bible. He disavows that it's from God. He doesn't believe in inspiration. He believes it's written by men. He believes that it's fallible. He believes it's open to any interpretation. And there is no way to truly understand the will of God through the printed page of the scriptures. And so there is that emphasis in our Christian world, in this progressive mindset. But Paul doesn't care about that. He, he quotes the scripture. You know, sometimes I think we're afraid to quote scripture because we think people don't believe the scripture and so we just, we just keep our mouth shut. Let me tell you something. Just because they don't believe it doesn't mean it, it doesn't have power. All right? I mean, if somebody breaks into your house at night and you reach into your, your nightstand and you pull out a pistol and you point it at them, can you imagine if they said, oh, <laughs> that's so silly, I don't believe in guns. <laughs> You're about to, that's right. <laughs> yeah, you can make them believe pretty quick. The word of God is a double-edged sword. It can cut you even if you don't believe in swords, Amen. So Paul goes on, verse five, he says, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, that's the brother of Christ, and to all the apostles. So he starts off with biblical evidence, and now he gives some eyewitness testimony. He goes, you want some eyewitnesses? Here you go. You got the original 12, okay, Peter, all those guys. And then, if that's not enough, how about 500? Boom. And by the way, most of them were still alive at the time. Some of them had died. This was written many years after Christ. But scholars think that at least 300 to 350 of, the, of those eyewitnesses that Paul is speaking of were still alive at the time of writing. That's physical evidence. And by the way, that's a conservative estimate because in those days they didn't count men. Excuse me, they only counted the men. So you count women and children in there, we could have well over 1,000, maybe 2,000 possibly that were eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. And then he went on and he appeared to others. And after he lists these eyewitnesses, last of all, he comes around to one more important eyewitness, Paul himself. And he says in verse eight, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And so he is, he's now giving. He's given biblical evidence. He's given eyewitness testimony and now his own personal testimony. And why is that important? Because Paul's testimony is amazing. There's no testimony like Paul's testimony. Paul's testimony is an apologetic argument for the reality of the risen Christ. Why? This was no ordinary guy that got saved. This was a rabid persecutor of Christians. This was Saul of Tarsus. He hated Jesus. He hated Jesus' followers. He chased them down like dogs. He arranged for the murder of the first Christian martyr. Stephen had him stoned. He would pursue Christians, have them enslaved, you know, put them in chains, torture them, kill them. And because of a direct encounter with the risen Christ, he was transformed. When he shares his story in the book of Acts, on one occasion he says, now allow me to share with you my defense. And the word for defense in the Greek is apologia. And we get the word apologetics from that word. And what is his apologetic argument? It's his testimony. It's his testimony. 
and he shares who he was before he met Christ and who he has become. He went from being a persecutor of Christians to a pursuer of Jesus. Possibly the greatest Christian who ever lived. Now what's his point here? His point is not to give us a pattern. His point is not to tell us, you know, your testimony is the key to someone receiving Jesus. Now can God use your testimony? Absolutely. But be careful. Do not equate your testimony with the gospel. Your testimony is precious. It is unique. Nobody's got a testimony like your testimony. Your testimony is not Paul's testimony. Paul's testimony is special. He was a special apostle to the Gentiles. And so he includes it here as another form of evidence for the risen Christ in in a way that you and I cannot even though your testimony is valid. But, but do not confuse your testimony. Use your testimony. Don't be afraid to share your testimony. But do not ever get into the mindset that my testimony is going to convince someone to follow Christ. God can use that, but the power is not in your testimony itself. Because when people start to think that that is the case, that's when they start to embellish a little bit. They start lying a little bit, all right? I remember when I was a kid, my dad was a pastor. Uh, I grew up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I remember in our little church, people come forward, they get saved. And people from all different you know, walks of life and, and places and things like that. And I remember listening to people give their testimony in a service on a, on a Wednesday night or a Sunday night or something like that. And I remember people would get up there and they'd be in tears and the whole place would be in tears and it'd be so moving. And somebody would share the depths from which God had rescued them and they'd be crying and they'd say, you know, God reached down and he pulled me out of the gutter. I was a drug dealer. I was a pimp. I was, you know, and I just, I just sit there listening. I go, wow. Oh. I wish I had a testimony like that. I wished I'd been in the gutter. I wished I'd been a pimp, you know? And, and I needed to realize that my testimony is my story. It's my story. I didn't really have any rebellion. I was a pastor's kid. You know, I didn't really go, any, go through any dark, dark phases. My biggest rebellion period happened in uh, sixth grade. We had just moved to a new town. I'd come from a small town in Oklahoma. We're now in this larger town in South Dakota. Lived in kind of a rough neighborhood. I went to school at this, you know, kind of a you know, tough little place. And they had some bullies in there. And they pushed me around all this stuff. And there was a guy named Jason. And he would get in my grill. And he would taunt me. And he'd bully me and all this stuff. And, and I was on the playground one day. And I accidentally bumped into him. And uh, he took it personally. And he wanted to pick a fight. And, he, and then it, recess was over. And then we had to go inside. And he was telling me as we went in, he goes, I'm going to pound you, Grim. After school, after school. You know, never happened to you? And on the playground, I remember earlier that day, I, I found something. I looked down and I saw something shiny. I picked it up and it was a fragment of like a, a, like a, a man's bracelet. The links were thicker, you know, and it was metal. And I had just stuck it in my pocket. And so... School is almost out, and I, I remember this kid's threat. He's going to pound me, you know, and so I'm watching the clock, and I get my backpack on, and I'm ready to go. The bell rings. I race out of that room. I go through the doors. Jason is breathing down my neck the whole way, and as I go out the doors, he shoves me, and I, I spill onto the pavement, and then he starts, he starts doing this thing, you know, come on, come on. And he pushes me up against the wall of the school. And kids are gathering around. They're like, go, go, get him, get him. You know, and all this stuff. And I'm going like this. And he gets right up in my face. And I reach into my pocket. And I pull out that, that bracelet fragment. And some of Jason's friends says, whoa, Jason, watch out. He's got a chain. <laughs> and I heard him say that. And I go, I look down and I go. Like that. And Jason goes, whoa, man, whoa, don't do it. And I went, whoosh, like that. And I hit him right on his leg, you know. Now, it was 1986, and he was wearing parachute pants. <laughs> they were thin as paper, you know. And I knew it hurt him because he went, ah, like that. 
and I dropped the chain and I took off. I jumped on the bus. We started rolling out of the parking lot. The kids are running after the bus. A teacher comes out. She's looking. They're trying to tell her what I did. She's got the chain in her hand. And I'm like, I got away. Or I thought I got away. I got home. My dad is standing in our doorway like this, you know, because they'd called and I ended up getting detention. That's my rebellion story, okay? Now, I could embellish that. I could get up in front of people and go, God saved me from a life of violence. I fought every day in the alley behind the school, uh, chain fights, you know. Don't get in to the trap of, you know, I, I don't have a testimony. God can use your testimony, but never ever fall into the trap that everything depends on my testimony. The simple gospel is power. It is the power. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. If all you ever shared with somebody is Jesus died for your sins, and if you will put your faith in what he did at Calvary for you, you can be forgiven and you can spend eternity with him. That has power. And that's all I've got. That Jesus died. I don't need some dramatic story. Christ died. God in the flesh died in my place at Calvary. I put my faith in him. He lives in me. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And he sent his spirit. I could depend on his spirit. One day he's going to come back for me. And I'm going to stand before God completely redeemed. That's all I need. Amen. And Christ makes, Paul makes much of Christ because of his testimony. The third thing here is that the true gospel has logic. Verse 12 says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Okay? And the, there's the question there. He doesn't say, how can you say Christ didn't raise from the, rise from the dead? These people in Corinth, they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't have a problem with that. But they did not all believe that anybody else could rise from the dead. That was a struggle for them. Uh, they, they, could, they could get on board with Jesus being a risen Savior, but their heritage told them that there's no such thing as a general resurrection of the righteous. They didn't believe in that. And so Paul is saying, look, here's what I preach to you as an apostle. So that's from authority. Here's the evidence that which God has validated historically out in the open. Now he starts in with logic right here. He says, look, there's some of you who on one hand uh, want to say that, that you, you're on board with, with the message that Christ died for our sins, rose again. But on the other hand, you want to say that your personal philosophy doesn't allow for the concept of resurrection for you. And you may be out there, you may be like, well, I would never question the concept of resurrection. Well, you might question other things. Lots of people who claim Christ struggle with stuff. We struggle with the idea of hell. A lot of people struggle with the idea of hell. How, would a, how could a good God send people to hell? A place of torment. Hell can't be literal. Some people really struggle with that. That was the whole point of one of Rob Bell's books. Was, you know, love wins. That there is no such thing as, as a literal hell. Hell is figurative. Hell is, hell is what, what man does to man. The worst that man can do. It's third world stuff. It's, it's poverty. It's war. It's crime. It's unethical behavior. It's all of that. And that leads you to this idea that, you know, maybe judgment is a, is a, is a fallacy. Maybe the atonement I mean, it leads you down dark paths. So what Paul does next is he shows the Corinthians what must follow if they deny the very possibility of resurrection, if they rob the gospel of the supernatural. And here's how it follows. Six things that logically follow if you rob the gospel of the supernatural. Number one, Jesus' resurrection never happened. Jesus' resurrection never happened. He says in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, if you can't rise, Christian, then not even Christ has been raised. Now that's brilliant. Why? Because Paul has just demonstrated for 12 verses that Jesus rose from the dead. He's just asserted that. He's confirmed that. And he's saying, if you don't believe that anybody else can rise, Jesus can't rise from the dead, okay? Now number two, if you deny the supernatural, the Christian message is pointless. 
It's a pointless message. He says in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. You see where this leads? Bad doctrine is like dominoes. You gotta get it right, okay? There are some people that wanna pick apart all the supernatural aspects of the Bible. They don't like that. They, they think it's distracting from more humanitarian things that we can engage in. We can create heaven on the earth right here, right now. Make people's lives better. Is that what makes Christianity distinctive? I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to wanna to make people's lives better. And yet there's, there's a movement within Christianity to make that our central message. Kindness, meeting people's needs, helping the poor, helping widows. Now is all that good? Of course it is. We're told it's a command, hello. But why, why do we do the commands? We do the commands because we're born again. We do it because we're indwelled by the Spirit of God. But we can't do those things and ignore eternity. But the world loves it if we say that's our only message. Lost people get on board with that. They're like, that's so great. You guys want to help people. Go God. Go church. <laughs> Paul's saying, look, if, the, if resurrection is not true, then Christ hasn't been raised. I've already proved that, so you get a problem there. Number two, if resurrection isn't true and Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain, meaning it's empty, it's useless, and we are fools. We are fools. You say, oh, I'd never say that. Ah, but you do, Corinthians, when you say there is no resurrection. Logically, it follows. Number three, if there's no supernatural, if there's no resurrection, then personal faith is pointless. Personal faith is pointless. He says, and your faith is in vain. Your faith is in vain. So much for you can still have a viable Christianity if you deny the supernatural. If you deny this whole resurrection thing, if you deny the reality of heaven, can I, can I not be a Christian if I deny the reality of heaven as a literal place? No. No, you can't. No, you can't. Well, you, who are you to say that I can't be a Christian and deny that heaven is a literal? Why? You don't understand. I, I, I don't believe in the resurrection, but I still have faith. Faith in what? Faith in what? Well, well my faith has gotten me through so many, gotten you through what? If you don't believe in the resurrection, you're not through anything. You're not through whatever you say you have faith to get you through. You're still in the smack in the middle of that. There must be a resurrection. There is, a, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. And number four, God's messengers are liars. He says, verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God, we, the apostles, because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Uh-oh, you're offending God now. Whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been raised. He's saying this, you know, you, you are calling me a liar. Now, who's going to cop to that? Who's going to cop to calling Paul, the apostle, a liar? Some people are like, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, yes, you did. You called me a liar. You're talking to me. <laughs> There's nobody else here. You must be talking to, you know, Paul is taxi driver. Anyway, <laughs> logically it falls. And then number five, if, if you deny all that, your spiritual condition is unchanged. Verse 15, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. I don't see any out here if you don't believe in the supernatural aspects of your salvation. If Christ has not been raised, there is no justification. You follow me? You know what that is? That's when you were born again, you put your faith in Christ, you are justified. What does that mean? That means you've been declared righteous. That means God looks at you and instead of the sinfulness of your life, he sees Jesus. And so if you deny this, then Christ has not been raised and there is no justification and there is no atonement and therefore uh, your sins have not been paid for. You say, well, I thought the crucifixion did that. Well, not if he wasn't raised. He's not paying for anything if he's not been raised. 
Because that would mean he's, a, he's not a worthy sacrifice. He's just a guy. If you neuter your gospel, then you have made Christ this worthless, impotent thing. He's just a man. If Christ has not been raised, there's no, there's no penal substitutionary atonement. If Christ has not been raised, that means he went into the ground with something that would keep him there. The only thing that would keep you in the grave is sin. If sin could keep Christ in the grave, he's just a mere mortal and he's not worthy of our praise because he's just a, just a dead guy. And so here's the cold, hard truth. When you believe that, you have offended a holy God. Just by virtue of your sin, you have offended a holy God. And so you need a worthy sacrifice. You need a worthy sacrifice because one day you will stand before an almighty God that scripture says is an all-consuming fire. And without the blood of Jesus that you've placed your faith in and you must believe in him as a risen savior, then you stand in judgment. You stand in judgment. You say, well, that's not fair. Your concept of what is fair is not informed by the one who defines fairness. For God not to punish sin would not be fair. Because it's, it's his nature. God is not just, he is justice. God is not adjectives, he's nouns. He's justice, he's righteousness, he's love, he's mercy. He's all of these things at once and essentially. People struggle with, well, you know, God is a God of love. Well, you're denying his other essential attributes. Just because you can't be more than one thing at once, don't make God into a human. God is God. And so for God to give you a pass without the shedding of blood and the remission of sin through the work of Jesus Christ would be a compromise of his essential character and nature. And then number six, the ramification of no resurrection is that eternity is hopeless. It's hopeless. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep, that's dead, in Christ, they've perished. They've perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are, of all people, most to be pitied. What's Paul saying? He's saying, if what you say is true, if there is no resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised and if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is in vain. And you know what that means? That means all of the people that you love who have claimed Christ that have died, they're in hell right now. They're just dead in the flesh and their souls are somewhere else. And we are to be pitied. Most of all, because we've bought into the greatest lie in the history of mankind. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So here's what happens because of how Paul, Paul has posed his arguments. If there is no resurrection from the dead, these six things are true. But here's the good news. Paul already spent 12 verses proving that he was raised from the dead. And so because he's proven that Christ was raised from the dead, the opposite is true. It flips everything. There is such a thing as the resurrection from the dead, which means Christ has been raised. Our preaching has a point and a purpose. And not only is our preaching not in vain, but it is the power of God unto salvation. And not only that, but your faith is not in vain, but it's by grace through faith that you have been saved, which means that God's messengers are telling the truth. I'm not a liar. Paul's not a liar. Brian Biggers is not a liar. And you are freed from your sin. You are not still in your sin, which means that Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust, a perfect sacrifice in order that he might bring us back to God, that all we who like sheep have gone astray, we've turned to our own way, but God has laid upon him uh, all of our sins, the iniquity of us all, and now I am not in my sin, I am redeemed from my sin, I am cleansed from all unrighteousness to the promise of God, I have put my trust in Christ, and I do not die hopelessly like those who have no hope, and I never will, because to be absent from the body when I die is to be at home with the Lord, which means there is a eternal hope. 
One day you might hear that Scott Grimm has died. And I want you to look them dead in the face and say, you're a liar. (laughs) He's not dead. He's not dead. Paul never says believers are dead. He says they've fallen asleep. You know why? Because when you fall asleep, you wake up. You wake up. One day you're going to wake up on that great getting up morning. Come on. You and me and everybody that you've ever loved in Christ, you're going to spend eternity with them. (laughs) I can't wait. I cannot wait. You know what else I can't wait for? I can't wait. After the new year, we're going to be doing a study on Wednesday nights about Bible prophecy. And we're going to look at all the promises of Scripture that have been fulfilled and the ones that are yet to be fulfilled because our God is a God who keeps his word. And one day, I'm going to shake the bonds of this earth. And I'm going to be in glory. And if, if somebody says, Scott Graham has died, you can say, no, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. He is alive. And not only that, he's better than he's ever been. He's better than he's ever been in this life. Why? In this life, he was only five foot five. You wouldn't believe. <laughs> and we accept all of these promises because we know the true gospel. The gospel matters. The gospel matters. Which gospel are you believing in tonight? Let's pray. As your heads are bowed, our prayer team, if they're here, they can make their way down and they will be here at the front of the stage for anybody who needs to spend some time in prayer. Maybe you heard something tonight that you would like to respond to. If that's the case, I want you to tell somebody up here at the front of this stage, I want you to tell them, I have believed a false gospel and I am ready to receive the true gospel and these people are ready to to pray with you as you receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to settle your eternity tonight? Let's do it. Don't wait any longer. You can do it right now where you are. Let's let's go to the Lord. And you pray along with me if this is the cry of your heart and you mean it from your heart. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I recognize that the true gospel is simply that I'm a sinner that you died for my sins because I could not pay the price. And you didn't simply die, you rose again. You died to crush the power of, uh, the reality of sin, but you rose to crush the power of it. And I am trusting in that tonight for my eternity. Would you be my Lord? Indwell me by your spirit so that I can follow you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.